Welcome back. Last year, Patrick Long of Rock Hill suffered a devastating loss. Two weeks before what would have been their 19th wedding anniversary, Patrick lost his beloved wife, Melanie, to complications from cancer. Melanie wasn't just a daughter, a mother of four, a sister, and a wife. She was the kind of person who made friends everywhere she went. She was on a first-name basis with the drive through worker at McDonald's who served up her beloved fountain cokes. When she and Patrick suffered financial problems, she even befriended a persistent bill collector who kept calling the house. And when she was dying at Barnes-Jewish Hospital, she didn't just befriend the nurses and other health workers. She actually tried playing matchmaker for two of her doctors. In Patrick Long's telling, Melanie Long was a remarkable woman, and in her final months, and now her final months and their marriage are the focus of his new memoir. It's called Ordinarily Extraordinary, and he joins us today to tell us about it. So, Patrick Long, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. So first, I have to say, um, I'm so sorry for your loss. From reading your book, your wife sounds like someone I would have just loved to sit down and talk to. Yeah, I think everybody felt that way. I've heard that from so many people, and she did. She just had an amazing number of friends. She could connect with people in ways. As much as I watched her do it over the years, I still can't figure out how she did it. So <laughs> she you... just had a way of talking to people and making friends almost instantly with people she'd never met before. You tell the story of your first date and how she she engaged the server at the restaurant in, in such a, a long conversation. Was it ever hard to deal with just how generous she was with her time when it came to people who were perfect strangers? There you are, her husband. You also have conversational needs. You know, it wasn't, wasn't. Um, both of us were kind of, you know, we just had the same thing where neither of us really had much in the way of jealousy. So, and I was always kind of a quiet person. Even when I hung out with friends, I was often the guy who just kind of sat back and observed more. Mm. And I, I was just such an awe of watching her do it all the time that <laughs> rather than like getting jealous or upset, I just, I loved seeing it. And what I love too is the way she'd do it is, you know, she really made it about the other person. And I got to learn so much about other people by just listening to her get them to, you know, bring their story out and share things about their lives that I enjoyed hearing it, too. And I, it was something that that's part of what drew me to her is that her ability to do that. And, you know, I enjoyed hearing it. So mm -hmm. there was a little bit of that from time to time. I'm not going to lie, but um Overall, I think it's, it's something that worked for us in our relationship. So that comes across so clearly in this book. Um, again, it's called Ordinarily Extraordinary. Um, but overall, this, this is a very serious book. You tell the story of Melanie's final weeks, and it's an incredibly difficult and complicated situation medically. Give us the backstory. What had been happening up until the point where you, you really start this memoir in, in, in the present? Um, well, <clears throat> as you mentioned, you know, to kind of go way back, but we had some financial difficulties and we, we kind of got through those. And then she had actually a few years earlier been diagnosed with a kind of rare, um, what they call an autoimmune disorder called Wegener's that presented in her lungs. So we had battled that and that was sort of a, um, the, the treatment on that was a form of chemo, even though that wasn't a cancer. Hmm. So she'd actually already been through some rounds of chemo. She, we dealt with that for about a year. Um, it actually got even more complicated because she was pregnant with our youngest son at the time, which was really scary mm -hmm. to be going through all that while pregnant. Um, got through that, kind of thought, okay, we're through the woods. And shortly thereafter, she got diagnosed with cancer. Um, so that, that was a very rough time. So that, that was about a three and a half year battle with cancer. And, and I what just, kind of cancer she, was that? 
She had breast cancer okay. and it metastasized. It was a very aggressive, so it moved into her bones. She had had a double mastectomy. She had had radiation treatments on top of very aggressive chemo. Um, they recognize it as being aggressive right off. So she, some people just do like one chemo drug. I didn't realize how many different chemo drugs there are. Mm. She was actually on three different chemo drugs at the same time, which is a very aggressive treatment. But even through all those treatments, through the double mastectomy, the radiation and everything else they did, um, the, the cancer still spread. So it, it was always a very aggressive, but, um, it still went on for about three and a half years. And then she had other problems with her, her the, you know, chemo has a lot of effects on your body and she ended up fracturing vertebrae in her spine, had to have surgery for that more than once, you know, just a lot of different things like that going on for the mm -hmm. three and a half years before the, the book starts when she had a stroke that kind of kicked this whole final several weeks into motion. And, and these these final weeks um, and these strokes that sort of start off um, everything that, that went wrong then at the very end, um, they just sound terrifying. How much of it was the fact that, that this was happening, um, you know, the actual fact of what was happening, and how much of it was just the terror of not even being able to understand what or why was going on? Yeah, all the above. Um, <laughs> Everything about it was difficult. Um, the in and out. There, there was all kinds of complications. You had kind of catch twenty twos with because of the strokes. They wanted to thin her blood, but they actually needed to get in and do some medical procedures. But they couldn't do them because of the thin blood. Because if they go in and do any kind of invasive procedure, the patient may not stop bleeding. There are other things like that going on. So many things I can't even get into. And, and, and you know, I'm a big supporter overall of the medical community, but I also recognize they're human. And we had some issues with you know, doctors and nurses not really explaining to us clearly what was going on, which just made it all the more confusing and caused some big confrontations with them mm -hmm. um, and things like that. And, and I don't mean that to knock them. I mean, they're human beings like anyone else. But it, of course, at the same time, still made it all the more frustrating, you know, not not being able to understand some of what was going on in these life threatening critical situations. I know. think what really comes across in your book is you had some really good doctors and then you also had some really annoying doctors. They're they're human like the rest of us and and for everyone that you were really happy with there were others where you just wanted to tear your hair out. It seems like you you had both ends of the experience there. Yeah, and like anybody, we all have different friends and different walks of life. So, I was kind of curious what some people in that community would think and multiple friends of mine who who are medical professionals doctors nurses have read it and they were like you know what you're saying is just true because you know there are some doctors who are very arrogant out there but i mean then there's that in any profession right I sure mean, <laughs> you, you see that everywhere so it's nothing to knock medical people themselves it's just those individuals but and then also you know some people just aren't as good at communicating and different things like that so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of that, which is, in a sense, just interpersonal stuff. At the same mm -hmm. time, I still salute them because I do think even when there is difficulty communicating and this and that, I think we got the greatest care we could have ever got. I think they all knew what they were doing, um, <laughs> regardless of some of the personal issues or some of the lack of communication. I mean, even if they couldn't communicate it to us, they knew what they were doing and they knew what was going on. I have every confidence in that, you know, the, the staff down at Barnes Jewish, um, you know, and, and, um, the, the cancer center and that they're, they're just phenomenal. The Siteman cancer center, mm -hmm. it's one of the best in the world.
We're talking to Patrick P. Long. He's a software developer and database architect who lives in Rock Hill. And his memoir, Ordinarily Extraordinary, details his wife's battle with cancer. And you're really focused on these final weeks here. She had such a long battle. But then all of a sudden, it just it feels like it was just over so quickly. Was that almost a jolt at the end? You'd kind of gotten used to the slog. All of a sudden, it wasn't a slog. It was just sort of this terrifying race to the end. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because as much as we knew we'd been dealing with it for years and we knew it was aggressive, there there weren't any signs that the end was near. And we, we were always hopeful. I was I was I've always tried to be optimistic and look on the bright side. And, I, you know, we, we still felt like she had more time than that. Plus, the hope, you know, the hope is and the hope we clung to is that they, they keep you going for a while and maybe somewhere along these years, People find better treatments or a cure. Mm -hmm. You know, this is why all the research that's going out. We're big supporters of the American Cancer Society, and I continue to be. And so so much of it, they do so many different services, but also the cancer, you know, the research and the funding they do for research to look for a cure, look for better treatments, different things like that. Because, yeah, we didn't see this coming. It it was a huge, we, I, you know, I, I knew, you know, she probably wasn't going to live to be 90, but mm-hmm. I, I still thought when all this started at that point in time, I was like, well, we have at least five or 10 more years, if not more. And then and all of a sudden, in a matter, <laughs> no, then all of a sudden in a matter of weeks, it, it turned obviously completely opposite. And, and your story of, of what happened in the immediate aftermath of her death, it was just, it, it was so real and, and so vivid for me. And I think anybody who has dealt with just a heartbreaking loss, they're going to really identify with those pages. But, you know, as the days and, and weeks went on, what was the hardest part for you in terms of dealing with suddenly your partner of more than 19 years um, is, is gone from your life? Oh, man. <laughs> Obviously losing her, but then really just figuring out where to go from there, you know, how to, excuse me, build upon the whole experience, how to stay positive, set a positive tone for our family, for our kids. Like, you know, Melanie was always an incredibly positive person. I mean, she had her moments like anybody does. And so did I. Um, But, you know, overall, we're happy people. We, you know, had a lot of fun in our lives. I think that's one of the things that characterized our relationship is we could always have fun. We could always, you know, and um, I and I want that to continue for our kids. I didn't mm-hmm. want our environment to become a sad environment. And I, I wanted to look for ways to build upon this, which was part of the inspiration for writing the book. Because as much as to some people, when I initially say what the book's about, it can sound very sad and tragic. And there is an aspect to it. I also consider it a very uplifting book. Um, and that's really my outlook is to, to, to live in Melanie's spirit of just having fun, you know, making friends, appreciating the people around you, you know, and just living your best life with all that, um, you know, then that, that struggle to get there. Cause as much as, as much as I was focused on that, that's, <laughs> I, it probably doesn't sound easy, but in a way I also feel like it sounds easier than it is. Cause you know, as soon as you do something, you know, life has a way of just kicking you in the gut or doing something to knock you back. And it's easy to get upset and caught up in those things. But you just got to keep finding those anchors and looking at the big picture and just staying positive and knowing you're going to get through whatever comes next. Did you sit down knowing that you wanted to write a book and knowing that you wanted the focus that you ended up choosing? Um, or, or did this more just come as, you know, you started jotting down notes and, and one thing led to another? Um, well, to go back, I've actually dreamed of being a writer my entire life. I loved writing stories and stuff, even as a kid. Um, I kind of idolized Mark Twain when I was young. 
we used to go up on trips to Hannibal all the time, and I, I wanted to be Mark Twain for a while. That's, that's a great man to um, decide to be. That's a that's a good yeah. hero right there. <laughs> um, so yeah, and I've actually written two books before. They're not published. I do hope to publish them one of these days. Um, but the, so this is actually, and I've done a ton over the years. This has been a dream of mine. I've done a ton over the years of study and going to writers' conferences and reading books on writing and everything under the sun. To, to develop the skills, written a lot of short stories and other things. Um, so after she passed, you know, thinking it all through, I, I was writing some of it down just for our kids, different things like that. And it, as the months went on, I just kept feeling compelled to do this. And then um, eventually it just became a project. And then even when I first started trying to do it, I almost couldn't. It was too mm-hmm. emotional. It was too raw. I made some outlines and some notes on what I wanted the story to be. Um but then ultimately I had a lot of trouble getting into it. And finally, like several months later, I got in a groove and I kind of found my, you know, I, I wrote the first chapter about 19 times and kept deleting it and starting over. Um, and then I kind of hit on something and realized the way to write it and kind of found my voice. And from mm-hmm. there, it just kind of, and then even from there, it was hard because I was really sacrificing a lot of time. You know, I'd get, I'd, this was all last year and I'd get a babysitter and I'd go up to the library and sit in the back corner of the library and write, mm-hmm. um, which also felt weird because sometimes I'd be sitting back there crying and wondering if all the people are looking over, wondering what was wrong with me. Yeah, I mean, there's because <laughs> they don't they don't know what I'm doing. I'm just sitting at a desk in the library or a table in the library. But right? you had but, to relive um, so many things that that I'm I'm sure were hard to relive. And you also you write a lot about your own emotions, even ones that are not flattering to you. Was it hard to be honest about some of these times when when you were so mad at Melanie or or you were so frustrated with her? Now knowing what you know that that she's gone. Oh, so much of that was as hard or harder than writing about the cancer. Because this is a book, I, I tell people constantly, this is not, don't think of this as, okay, it's a cancer book. It's not a can. This is a book about life, relationships, personal turmoil, trauma, overcoming things. Yeah, I went back and shared backstory of even some trauma and different things I experienced as a kid. And, and I did it strategically. It was all part of the story to show, to bring readers in, let them relate to us, see things through our eyes, and understand why certain events you know, hit the the way they did, you mm-hmm. know, because you could see it through my eyes once you understood more of who I was. But writing some of those things, yeah, I mean, I, I went back and forth on whether or not I would. There was a couple of things I wrote that I deleted. And then I thought, you know, as a writer, I want to consider myself an artist in that way. And I think one of the very first things, if you're going to be an artist, you got to be ready to bear your soul. Mm-hmm. And I thought to really leave this, you know, my first inspiration was to leave stories for my kids so they'd know their mom, they'd know us, but also to leave them things that could help them deal with tragedies and hard times in their life. And then as I wrote it, I also realized it's not just for them, it's for anyone, mm-hmm. you know. And, and that's been the the result of, of what I've done is the feedback I'm getting from people. This, this, this has become so much bigger than me. I'm getting feedback. It started with friends and family. Then it started becoming friends of friends and friends. Of... Now I'm I'm getting people finding me on social media and direct messaging me, and I have no idea who they are. Hmm. And they're opening up and sharing with me in ways I can't even believe and talking about how much the book is. And it's, like I said, like you said, and like I just said, it's not just about the cancer. It's, it, it touches people. And so, you know, I have, I've had people, you know, contacting me and calling up who've had you know, substance abuse issues and addiction issues or people who've gone through traumatic like car accidents and all kinds of medical issues or, you know, relationships and marital stuff. And, it, you know, because pain is pain, you know, and loss is loss. And as much as 
you know, this is more focused on cancer. It's focused on a lot of different things and turmoil in our marriage that I was very honest about and things like that. And all those things are relating to people. And it's amazing how people are thanking me for writing it. Mm-hmm. That uh, You know, some of these things are not things I was expecting because I actually thought some of the things I shared were really going to make me look bad. And some of the things I was most scared about making me look bad are actually the things that are connecting with people the most. Because people are like, I'm glad I'm not the only one who feels that way or thought that way. You know, and things like that. That's resonating with people. So your kids, oh, yeah. uh, you mentioned your children. Your kids are now 14, 10, 8, and 6. That's such a hard time um, to lose a mom. You don't write that much about your kids in this book. I imagine that must have been by design. Um, were you hoping to protect some of their privacy there? Yeah, and I just feel that way. And I don't know what's right or wrong. I probably could have written a little more about them or shared more. But I just, I don't know. I've seen too many of we all have people who almost, you know, commercialize their kids. And I, I definitely didn't want to do that. And also because they're so young, um, they're, they're obviously, this is their story and it's a huge part of it. But as far as the events that were going on, they weren't necessarily, you know, they weren't in their in the hospital for a lot of it or things mm-hmm. like that. But, but I, I wanted it to be for them and not so much about them. And I, I just didn't want to like manipulate or use them for just commercial purposes or whatever. And that was my feeling, you know? So yeah, I, I, I'm a very protective person by nature of people that are close to me and particularly my kids. And <laughs> I, I'm going to protect them first before anything else, you know? So. I, I- and I don't want to get into anything that, that um, violates their privacy, but I did find myself after getting to know you and, and getting to know your late wife so much throughout this book, I just found myself hoping today that, that they're doing well. Um, are, have they been able to hang in there? And, and if so, uh, what have been some things that have helped them? Oh, my gosh, they're amazing. I mean, the, the resiliency of them is just beyond anything I ever expected right mm-hmm. from the beginning. I just couldn't even believe it. But um, I think one is they have a lot of the spirit of their mom in them. She, mm-hmm. my, Melanie actually lost her mom when she was nine to breast cancer. So this was her worst nightmare. Mm-hmm. And um, the kids, um, like her, they just, you know, she was that way, too. The stories I heard about her is how amazing she was even at a young age, even after losing her mom. And they just, they have so much fun together, even being locked in the house under COVID. I'm sometimes very happy with how well they play together and stuff like that. That's great. Um, but they also, and I have to say this, we're, we're in an organization called Camp Kesem, which is a national organization, but it runs out of colleges. So college students are the counselors and that. Um, we're in the St. Louis University chapter of Camp Kesem. We've been in it since she got diagnosed, basically. Um, this year they had to do their camp virtually, which they just had last week. But Camp Kesem really helps kids who've had a parent with cancer. They help them through and beyond a parent's cancer. And I really, a thousand times over, believe my kids handled this so much better because of Camp Kesem Mm -hmm. than they ever would have otherwise. Like they were prepared. They understood from hearing other kids' stories and seeing how life goes on. That I think it gave them a, a strength and an ability to cope with this. And then the support Kesem's given them since it happened. You know, I mean, they're still part of it. The counselors are still interacting with them and, you know, doing the virtual camp and everything else. And it's just been Boy, it's been an unbelievable blessing in our lives. That's great to hear. And, and Patrick, in our final minute here, um, I know many other people do deal with this situation, the loss of a spouse. If you had to drill it down again in just one minute, but what would be the one piece of advice you'd give to somebody in that situation? 
I mean, for me, again, it's the biggest thing for me has been living on in her spirit. Um, you know, she would not want us to sit around and be sad. She'd want us to keep enjoying life, going on, having fun. And just recognizing the community around you is probably the bigger part. I, I learned how to be a better member of my community and be a better friend through her. And our community has just supported us so much. And, you know, people coming over and just doing stuff for us right and left that I would never even think to do for someone. But, I, I, you know, and just drawing on, you know, open yourself up and be willing to accept help and just be open to people more than you've ever been. Because it, it really, may, you know, even the little casual relationships you have can make a big difference in your life. And, you know, sharing your story and listening to other people and just enjoying them. Well, all, all those things, you know. Well, Patrick Long, I want to thank you. Um, thank you for sharing that sto- sharing your story, and, and thank you for that advice. And thank you for joining us today. Thank you. I appreciate it so much. And Patrick's book is called Ordinarily Extraordinary. One quick note, I hosted St. Louis on the Air for the very first time one year ago today. It's been a humbling year. You don't know all you don't know until you try to do it live on the air. It's also been a wonderfully educational year and in many ways a joyous one. I want to thank our terrific team of producers and our sound engineer for bearing with me as I tried to figure things out. And more than anything, I want to thank everyone who's joined us in conversation. It's been wonderful talking with you. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. That's 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.